Okay, final word on the subject who is finally in question. We're on page 195, looking right down to the middle of the page and remembering the last word of the previous lecture, language. Because now what Lacan is going to do is say, now that you understand how symptoms work as signifiers in a signifying order known as language, we can understand a little bit more about the truth behind the mirage with which this essay begins, like our lectures, the mirage of the completeness of the subject. The subject here, not the signifier, is really what's at stake for Lacan. That's why we started on 192 with this mirage, which is not even debated, the completeness of the subject. So all this work that he does to take on philosophy, to refigure symptoms as signifiers apart from signs and representational logics up to 195 is about getting us to some understanding of the subject that does not comply with the mirage or the fantasy of completeness. And here we go, middle of page 195. By taking one's bearings from the joint between the consequences of language and the desire for knowledge, a joint that is the subject. Now let's just pause right there and rework this as a sentence that makes sense. <clears throat> the subject is the joint between the consequences of language and the desire for knowledge. Now that's important here. The subject is not some complete holistic entity. The subject is a joint, is a connecting place. And if you have two things joined together, what you have to also know is that there will always be some minimum distance, a crack or a fissure or a joint that allows them to remain discernible as two distinct entities. If you take two entities, like two cups of water, and you pour one into the other, there's not a joint that connects the two cups of water. Now you just have one cup of water. The joint is gone. There are not two gatherings of water, but only one. You see? A joint is required in order for two entities to be connected, but also to be discernible as distinct. And you'll see oftentimes in Lacanian literatures this question of what is objea? What is this little a that is the object cause of desire? You'll see desire as a word here. We're going to talk about it in a second. But it is just this. It is the minimum distance between two points that allows these points to remain distinct. Here, Lacan is using the word joint for that minimum distance. The subject is neither one nor the other, but the joining of them. The same way that the truth of the symptom is the articulation of those symptoms. A signifier has meaning only through its relation to another signifier. It's at the level of the relationship, the connection that the signifier takes on meaning. It doesn't have meaning in itself. It doesn't have meaning in a referent that it connects to. 
It has meaning in its connection to another signifier, the same way that the word cat and fuzzy have meaning in connection to each other. It's the connection that gives them import. This connection is the truth of the symptom, it's the truth of the signifying order, it's the truth of truth, and it is also here the truth of the subject. The subject is the joint between the consequences of language and the desire for knowledge. So let's take these topics one at a time. What are the consequences of language? Now this is one of the central parts in all of Lacanian psychoanalysis. The consequences of language when it is introduced into the life of a human being. If you scroll down a little bit, you'll see a paragraph that begins all of these verification values on 195 will not stop castration, which is the key to the subject's radical dodge. There's that French word again that connects with the word for detour on 195, by which the symptom comes into being. From remaining even in the training analysis, the enigma that the subject resolves only by avoiding it. Now let's just focus on this. this. There's a connection going on here between what's happening at the bottom of 195, the detour of truth and knowledge, and the consequences of language. <clears throat> Castration does not mean that somebody is manually cutting at your junk. This is not a physical enterprise. Castration for Lacan, if you want a better word for it, more accurate word, a less charged word, is prohibition. The first and foremost consequence of language when it is introduced into your life was prohibition. So no matter what your first word was, no matter what the first word you heard was, its function was as no, as prohibition. And the prohibition that is the first signifier of any language, that is no, is a prohibition against living without prohibition, against continuing on in life as though there were not this other thing, this other place known as language. And you see this all the time with little kids. You'll see the parent at the store and the little kid is crying because they want something, a piece of candy or some type of cereal or whatever. And the parent says something like, I can't understand you when you're crying. Use your words. Use your big boy words. I don't understand you when you're crying. Tell me what happened. And then the kid, of course, struggles with this and sobbing is, and I just want this. You could, you could see them struggling to take this impulsive, affective, intense state and put it into words. Now, these are not the child's words. They are yours. The tongue you're asking the child to use is always the mother's tongue. This is a language that predated their birth, the language that you spoke. And then they're born into the world, and over time you introduce them to this language, gradually integrating them, ideally, if you want to produce just a normal person, integrating them into language. One of the basic origins of psychosis in Lacanian psychoanalysis <clears throat> is a failure to integrate into language, into the symbolic. You have a broken relationship to the symbolic, which is, of course, what gets us on to the synthome later in life. 
The synthome for the psychotic is a special type of linguistic apparatus that heals or closes the rupture in the subject's relationship to language. But that's separate for the lectures on psychosis, which you may have seen. Here, what we're thinking of is a subject that's going to be integrated into the normal order of things. I say normal not because it's right, but because it's what's typical. Law, order, neighborhood, conventions, how you're supposed to hold a fork, all these civilizing techniques <coughs> that make up one's community. The word here is castration, though, because what it says is you don't just get to eat with your hands anymore. Now you have to do it a different way. That insistence that you have to do it differently functions as a prohibition. This is the first and foremost consequence of language. When language is introduced into a child's life, it functions as a prohibition. Yes, it gives the child new ways to express their needs in the forms of demands. But what it does also is it prohibits them from doing something other than using language. That's the first and foremost thing to note about the consequences of language here, is that it produces a prohibition. It is experienced as a prohibition against any furthering of life without prohibition. When you're a baby, you eat with your hands. You say what you want. When you have to poop, you poop. When you have to pee, you pee. When you're upset, you cry. With the advent of language, though, with the advent of society, with all of its rules, with the advent of the symbolic, you now learn that there are appropriate times and places to poop and pee. Sometimes crying is not going to get you what you want. You have to use a different methodology. This is what we're talking about here. The first and foremost consequence of language is this experience of castration, the best word for which is prohibition of constraint. Now, it's constraint that is productive for most people because it gives them a place in the world, a sense of identity, a sense of what object relations theorists would call containment. It allows them to feel held by the symbolic. And that holding or containing function is actually extremely fertile for senses of self, for senses of identity, for senses of reality, for non-psychotic, non-maladaptive relations to others. It is an extremely productive and maybe even the basic functional productive move that society makes is to provide you with a place, a home. And this is exactly what is at stake when we talk about language as the house of being. More in a minute. Still on page 195, working this text very carefully. The first consequence of language, as we've seen, is prohibition. And what that prohibition effectively does is it splits the subject into two aspects of its being. One aspect is prelinguistic, animalistic, biological, viably impulsive. The other aspect that is introduced when language is imposed and prohibition occurs in the subject is that now the subject also has a sociological component, a linguistic sense of self, a sense of self that exists at the level of the signifier that the social order imposed on them when they were born. In this case, your first name. 
You are not your first name, but nevertheless, you answer to it. That is your personal signifier, but it is you existing in the field of language, which is not the same as where you exist when you're sitting on the toilet. So you can exist, for instance, on an envelope that the mail carrier is actively putting in your mailbox right now. As a linguistic being, your name is on that envelope, and so are you. But you can be in the bathroom while that's happening, as a biological being, pursuing other urges. The point about this is that when language is introduced, and when you find yourself integrated into its order, its signifying order, you find yourself like a symptom, with meaning only in connection to all these other parts of yourself, linguistic parts that exist elsewhere, your bank account, your internet profiles, your appearance on the apps, dating apps, social media apps, your handles all up and down Twitter. These are you, but elsewhere. You are this dispersed, reticulate being. You exist as identity, as an articulation of all these different signifiers that are you. There's always only one biological, material, embodied you. But there are all these other linguistic yous that float around at the level of the name, the account number, your social security number, your internet handles and the like. <clears throat> what we're getting at here is that the subject is very much like a symptom. It exists and derives meaning only by its connection to other subjects, you might say versions of yourself, in a signifying order, an order that is mediated by language. Now what this means is that you are this network of signifiers. You are a networked self, if you will. That is not a complete holistic self. This is an understanding of digital identity, identity in the digital age, you might say, where the completeness of the subject is cast aside and you accept that you are this networked self. A subject, in other words, that exists as a series of joints. Remember what we're talking about here on page 195. The subject is the joint between the consequences of language and the desire for knowledge. Now, if you exist as a subject and you are an articulated subject existing only as a series of joints between all these different nodal points, all these different signifiers, all of which are you. This is a consequence of language. You are a split subject, a divided subject, made up of all these connected yet ultimately distinct entities. You know what you start to look like in this case? A dictionary. You start to look like a differential system of signifiers. The self, the networked self, is a differential system of signifiers. The subject and the symptom fit very well together here. Now what happens is, is that this series of connected entities that is a consequence of language, and remember the basic consequence of language is prohibition, is a subtraction of something, a cut that is introduced, a gap that is opened up. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. The joint is the minimum gap required between two entities to allow them to remain distinct. This is what produces the desire for knowledge 
as wholeness, as complete consciousness, as total self-awareness. This is what Lacan is getting at here with truth versus knowledge, psychoanalysis versus philosophy. Unconscious truth that psychoanalysis pursues <clears throat> and conscious awareness, knowledge of self, pure and complete knowledge of oneself that philosophy promises. Here, the desire for knowledge as self-knowledge, as whole knowledge, as complete self-awareness of all of your connecting parts and all of your nodal points, is also articulate with the desire of philosophy as complete self-awareness. And this is desire. Why? Not because it aims at wholeness. All desire aims at the acquisition of objects that we believe will make us whole. If we just get a better smartphone, we'll feel more in touch with the world, better in our own skin and so forth. That's not though what the crux of desire is. Everybody knows what they desire. Everybody has a list of objects they want. And the fantasy is that if I just get them, I'll feel whole. I'll be that complete subject. If I can just get the job, the car, the house, the partner, the family, if I can just get all this stuff lined up, if I can just get my shit together, I'll be whole. Not so. You know what you want. See my use of knowledge there? But the truth of desire is somewhere else. The truth of desire is not in the object that you want. It's in the cause of desire itself. In other words, not what you want, but why you want. Why do you desire? Because you experience yourself as missing something. It is the experience of lack that causes or activates desire for certain objects. The key question in psychoanalysis, in other words, is not what do you want, but why do you want it? You want it because you don't have it. Now, I don't have horns, but I don't feel like I'm missing them. I don't feel like I lack horns. It's the experience of lack. It's the experience of feeling like you want or need something that you don't have. And what else is the goal of advertising? except this, to produce the experience of lack, to make you feel like you're missing something. A new phone, a new car, a better shirt, whatever the case may be. It's the production of the experience of lack that marketers do day in and day out. They make you feel like you're missing out on stuff. They make you fear that you're going to be missing out on stuff. And as a result, they drive you in capitalist logics to the store to buy stuff. Stuff that you hope is going to make you feel whole again. Desires, key question is not what do you want, in other words, but why do you want it? And this desire for knowledge, for self-awareness, for self-consciousness that we've been talking about here, I'm trying to tell you why we want that. We want and desire pure, 100% complete understandings of ourselves, enlightenment, if you will, because in our everyday lives, that's not what we have. You are not aware of the mail carrier bringing the envelope with your name on it and putting it in your mailbox while you're in the bathroom. You as a subject are out in the world doing things right now that you never knew you could. 
You're doing things online even though you're not doing anything online right now. Somebody is retweeting one of your posts and there you go communicating to others as a result. Unbeknownst to you, that's happening in the background outside of your consciousness and we know it. You know as soon as you click send on an email that somebody could forward that email to someone else. It could be happening right now as you watch this lecture. You're not aware of it. But the fantasy of completeness, the desire for knowledge, is that maybe someday you could become aware of it. That's what we're working on here. The desire for knowledge. So here we have a subject that is the joint between the consequences of language, the first and foremost of which is prohibition, fragmentation, a splintering or splitting of the subject into all these different areas, parts of which are biological, parts of which are, linguist, are linguistic. And this splitting of the subject is what creates all the gaps and the cuts in your identity that your desire for knowledge tries to fill in. And oftentimes people go to therapy in pursuit of this desire for knowledge, self-knowledge. They go to therapy and say, I just don't understand why I do what I do. Please bring me answers. Help me have a fuller, more complete understanding of myself. This is a very common, very normal, but incorrect and rather dangerous approach to self-help. You think what you want is to know more about yourself, to have a complete self-awareness, to know thyself. The truth of psychoanalysis is that you cannot ever do that because there are always going to be parts of you that are unconscious, including those parts that are being forwarded to somebody else via email right now, that are being retweeted and sent out into the world, unbeknownst to you, and that are coursing their way to your mailbox on the cover of an envelope. Those are all parts of you too. Those are parts of you that can exist because we live in a signifying order, an order of signifiers. You are not physically, materially on Twitter, but your signifier is, your digits are, so on and so forth. So what we have here is an understanding of the subject that is this jointed configuration of things, two of which are the consequences of language, which we've discussed, and this desire for knowledge as self-awareness, as a way to get beyond ignorance, the hope that we could someday be less ignorant about ourselves. This is the subject's detour. Truth confused with knowledge, mistaken truth. The subject's detour into the pursuit of completion, wholeness, fullness, is a detour of the truth of the unconscious into the fantasy of total knowledge of oneself. It's a truth that is detoured into knowledge. The important point is not the consequence of language and not the desire for knowledge. The point about the subject is they're joining 
the subject is the minimum distance required between those two elements, the consequences of language and the desire for knowledge, that allows them to remain distinct. The subject is their point of articulation. That's what it is. It's the joint. And this is what we have to remember. This joining makes for a networked self, a self that is comprised of many nodal points, some of which we are aware, some of which we are unaware, some of which are conscious, others of which are unconscious. Lacan's point is if you put all your eggs in the basket of consciousness and try and pursue that to the end of the line in search of completeness, you're destined to be let down because nobody's perfect. Nobody's whole. We all have unconscious truths. We all have bloody velvet shirts stuck to our skin. 